So this word rapture, um, most, some of you may have heard it, some of you may not. It's, it's not a, a, a common word in the Bible. We'll talk about the verses that it came from, but it means the carrying off, or in the Greek, it means to be taken away. So the modern designation or use of the word was popularized in 1830s by John Nelson Darby, who was the father of dispensationalism, all right? So it's not very old. The idea of the rapture dates back closely to the 1830s. So how old is this thought, this way of thinking, this belief structure? Not very old. So none of the early church or the church fathers used this term or even used the passage that we're going to talk about in a moment to highlight this modern designation of Nelson Darby. Dispensationalism, for those who don't know, is the idea that God breaks uh, time up into certain frames or certain epochs to highlight how God has moved down through the ages, i.e., uh, the, 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 uh, the time or the dispensation of Adam and Eve was the dispensation of innocence. In fact, I've got a list here. I could read them to you. Um, then we have uh, the dispensation of conscience, which was around the, the flood, uh, human government, promise, law, through to now, which is the dispensation of grace or the epoch or the time of grace before the great rapture. So what uh, uh, Mr. Darby did was he popularised the idea that history is broken up into time pockets where God does certain things in those time pockets, basing his theory on the fact that the Bible is an actual, literal, time-framed book of some 6,000 years of age, all right? And so it literally tracks the way in which God sees the world and has acted out. Now, an ancient designation of the word rapture before the modern one came in is, is what they called mystical union with God. So that the idea behind the word um, hapazor, which I'm reading in Māori, <laughs> to be taken away is to be carried away into deep union with God, to be caught up into something that completely overwhelms and transforms your way of being. That's a more ancient way of looking at that word. The more modern way uh, is uh, that one day uh, something's gonna happen in the clouds. Now, another word that the Bible uses is the word parousia, which is the Greek word for the second coming of Christ. So that down through the ages, the evangelical church or many church groups have believed that there's coming a day when someone on a horse um, is gonna break through the clouds and uh, there's gonna be a return of Jesus to the earth and he's gonna rule and reign. Um, and I think you probably covered this, covered this in one of your sessions. And they can't quite work out. So there's a lot of theories around, does the rapture happen uh, at the same time as Jesus' second return? Uh, does it happen first with some tribulation and some stuff like that? So here we have a really dodgy chart because it's really bad. And these are the different uh, comparisons of Christian tribulation views. I'm gonna stand over here so I can see it as well. So we have the first one, the pre-tribulation, which believes that before the great persecution where the world is gonna come under great pressure ruled by the Antichrist, uh, the rapture's gonna come, we're gonna meet Christ in the clouds and, and He's gonna whip us away. Then there's gonna be a great tribulation and then Christ is gonna come back again, the millennial reign, the last judgment, then eternity. They're called pre-tribulationists. Okay, I've never figured out which one I am uh, because I'm, I just couldn't, I wasn't that smart. And I'm a little bit agnostic when it comes to understanding the rapture because I haven't spent enough time doing it and I think I needed to get away from 
what we commonly call now the evacuation mindset of the Western church, right, which we'll, we'll talk about later. Okay, the second one is the mid-tribulation, which means halfway through the tribulation, so we get to suffer a little bit as well. The first one, by the way, means that we don't get to suffer. Our suffering is that we had to follow Jesus. Yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> so uh, the suffering is that we had to follow Jesus. It's so hard being a Christian. And why should the devil have all the good music? Why should everybody have all the fun and sin like crazy and we have to be like Puritans? Really weird, eh? The reason you're a Christian is not because you're suffering for Jesus. It's because it's the great way to live, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I suggest that you're not missing out on much sin at all. You just have your own ways of sinning, all right? We Christians sin differently uh, to those who aren't Christians, if you believe that there's a difference between those two groups of people. All right, so the second one is means we get to suffer a little bit. There's gonna be a little pressure, um, some changes in the world, governments are gonna form, there's gonna be lots of persecutions. We might even face a little bit of warfare. So it's the preacher, the post-trib, is the second coming and the rapture happen at the same time. So we go right through the tribulation, we suffer, we have to stand up for our faith. Some of us may lose our heads. Uh, some of us may lose family members, but each of these traditional views all right, of the tribulation have shaped a lot of how we believe uh, the future looks or unfolds. And primarily all of it is because we have, or not demonized, but subtly undervalued the life that we have on earth. Somehow we have minimized earthly existence, earthly spiritual existence, because we believe that there is a higher level of spiritual existence, which is outside of this realm, outside of the space, which is the opposite to what we talked about over here in this group. And that the original or one of the primary ideas as to why Jesus came was to represent God to us and represent the possibility of the kingdom of God on earth, right? Not just to save us so that you wouldn't go to the hot place when you die, but to show up and represent God, re-represent God, re-envision life for us here and now, all right? But unfortunately, because of the rapture idea, many of us have been caught up in an idea. Now, here's, here's the verse. Uh, it's 1 Thessalonians 4. It says this, For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven. This is Paul, one of the early, early books. This is before any of the Gospels were probably written. So Paul was the early church or biblical author of the New Testament. So none of the Gospels were penned until probably starting around 65, 70 AD all right, through to about 100 when John was written. But prior to that, Paul wrote a whole bunch of books because he was traveling and he wrote to different churches. This is the one he wrote to the Thessalonians. And a lot of his writing in Thessalonians is, is very es eschatological. It's about uh, working in the time, suffering under persecution, trying to figure out how to be a believer in a brutal and uh, disruptive and horrible regime, the Roman, the Roman Empire. And so he's writing to the Christians. You need to understand the context. He's writing to the Christians to help them understand not that one day they'll escape this, but one day something will break in to their world and encourage and hope them and help them. So here's what he says. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven 
with a loud command, with the voice of, an, of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, why do you think he uses such strong, descriptive, vertical language in writing to the people that he's writing to? So, so literal that it's nearly impossible not to read it in a very vertical way, right? God's up there, we're down here, God is coming down here. Why do you think he uses such vertical um, language to try and make a point to the people? <laughs> it's really good. So, so one of the ways in which the, the ancient Near East worked was in order for people to cope in the world and cope with the pressures around them, they needed an, an, an otherworldly perspective and something outside of this, this an, an otherness that gave them strength, strength or courage to live in their thisness. And so the most obvious way to describe otherness is with a, with a, with a vertical idea. When in actual fact, we live on a kind of a round thing. And wherever up is, for you, it might be out for someone else. So rather than using the idea of down and up, one of the, some of the scholars prefer us to consider the idea of beyond. All right? The Lord himself will come from beyond with a loud command in the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise, will come back to life. After that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will be with the Lord forever. Caught up, there's that idea. That's the, that's the word rapture, caught up into. Now, N.T. Wright says this. There are three possible ideas behind caught up, which we got where we bring the word rapture from. Rather than a disappearing act, you know, all the bad ones stay here and all the good ones go, um, he comes up with an idea that what Paul is trying to say here is that he's referring to the idea that when Moses came down from the mountain with the Torah, when he came down from the mountain with the Word of God, the people were caught up into the possibility of what God was saying and that revelation came to them or understanding or deeper wisdom, meaning, a better way to live. So when Moses comes down from the mountain with the Torah, or with the Ten Commandments especially, what's he saying to the people? There's a better way to live. Here's a new way. Get caught up in this. Let, let me catch, you know, infect you with the possibility of what it might be to live differently. The second thing he says is he's talking out of Daniel. He's possibly referring to the book of Daniel where Daniel writes to the people of God while in um, Babylon. And he writes to them and says, you know what? God is here for you when you're in deep persecution, when you're really struggling, which is very similar to the story of the Thessalonian church. So he's writing to the Thessalonians in their context and he's saying, guys, there's coming a day, there's coming a time when you'll be caught up, when you will be drawn out of, and you'll be rescued from the persecution and the pressure that you're on. And all of these, these three things are a great way for us to process what it means to be caught up with God, caught in the moment, animated again, given fresh hope and courage to stand up and, 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 and keep believing and living the life that we feel we meant to be. The last one is this idea that um, it was common when an emperor or a king came to town, 
when they brought their entourage to town, they would come to town and people would go out to meet them. They would be caught up, they would be caught out or they'd be taken out to meet the king and then welcome the king back in and begin to integrate what that king brings into the world so that they would live differently. So in other words, they're saying, you are welcome here. Very similar to how Māori welcomed uh, Europeans in New Zealand. Come, share our land, and yes, we will embrace what you have if you embrace what we have. A sharing, a welcoming, a, a getting caught up in a bigger version of yourself, a bigger worldview. And so what NT says is that when Paul is talking here, He's not necessarily suggesting that you should read this in a literal way, that there's coming a day because there's not enough backup in the Scriptures to support this one passage as being the only way to see what the end times or the, the end looks like. So what NT is saying, that rather than thinking about there, Paul is asking us to think about here. He's saying, now come on. Come on, what happens when a fresh word captures your imagination and you get caught in it? Ever been caught in the web of something really wonderful? We, we say that, you, you just, you captured my imagination. Because that's what revelation does. When revelation captures you, it animates you and changes the way you act. Caught up in a fresh word or understanding of God. Again, raised up in times, that, uh, one of the things that we say um, when someone is struggling or being persecuted, we say, you need to be encouraged or encouraged. In other words, you need courage spoken into your life so that you can be caught up in the possibility of hope. All right? And of course, the other one is that, uh, the beautiful one for me is, is the, the appearance of Jesus at the right time saying, um, I'm the new way of being. I'm the new representation of God. Everything that you have understood as to what God is like has been slowly corrupting the value that you've been putting on humanity. And Jesus comes and redigs the well of wonder and beauty and love and acceptance that God has for us as humans. Yeah? Just, just an idea. So what this passage in Thessalonians is doing is, remember, Paul is writing to a persecuted bunch of Christians. He's writing to a world where they all want escape. What, what was the one thing that the disciples wanted Jesus to do when he came? Destroy the evil empire, right? Not, not to take them somewhere. None of the disciples were looking for Jesus to take them to heaven. They were looking for Jesus to destroy the evil empire so that peace could come again in Israel and that the rule of God, which they believe was in their Torah, would take primary position again. Yeah? All right, so here's, here's a, we'll just read a couple of other passages and we'll take a quick break. So there are two passages in Matthew and one, one in Luke. Um, I'll mention these. We're going to take a break. We'll come back. We'll do lots of discussion. But about the day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it is, will be in the coming of the Son of Man. From the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, 
one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. There'll be no time. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife when she turned back? She turned into a pillar of salt. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people or two men, as it says in the King James, will be in one bed. Um, uh, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Now, interesting, and we'll come back and we'll talk about this. Both of these passages have become like... Uh, dominant voices in how we understand what the return of God will be like and that there will be what, what uh, scholars call a divine separation, wheat from the chaff, sheep from the ghosts, uh, foolish from the wise. There'll be this, this incredible separation, all the bad ones over there and all the good ones over here. But look what, what, look what Jesus says at the end of Luke. They say to him, where, Lord? Where's he taking them? And he says, where there, is, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. What Jesus is doing is he's suggesting he's using Gehenna imagery. And that when Jesus uses Gehenna language and imagery, Gehenna being hell, yeah, but what else was Gehenna? Burial ground, rubbish dump, a place where refuse, stuff throws out, continual fire, continual purging of things that are no longer beneficial to the health and well-being of our humanity or our lifestyle or our way of being. And he says when he uses imagery, he's using it as a metaphor for the state of being which is destructive, violent, and ultimately leads to one's own disintegration, not about an eternal destination. So what, what, what he's doing in these passages is that he's saying somehow there's coming a great separation, a great returning to the well-being of your humanity. And that there's coming a day when maybe we could say it like this, your false self and your true self will finally be separated, where there will be a disintegration of that which is destructive and violent and ultimately leads to one's own disintegration. So I want to propose to you that possibly what Jesus is talking about is not two separate groups of people, but he might be suggesting to you as a person and to us as a community that there is coming a day, often when the Bible uses two people or sets, it's often not just talking about two different people, but it's often talking about two different ideas of who you are as a human being. And the beautiful idea of the Gehenna imagery is that God might be suggesting that the rapture actually is about the coming of something fresh in order for there to be a great separation so that you can become the person you're meant to be and enjoy life in a whole new way, both now and forevermore. So pause for a moment, have a cup of tea, have some more chocolate, let your minds be mad and uh, then we're going to come back and we're going to do some more interaction and talking together, all right? Yeah? yeah?
Cool. All right, guys. Let's um, just so that we don't, I don't talk the whole session, and we have some time for discussion because I have some questions to give to you guys to jump into groups and talk. Um, so, so the first thing we have concluded is that down through the ages, or not for that long, 190 years, for the last 190 years, the church has been caught up in a way of thinking, sorry about the pun, caught up in a way of thinking around how the future unfolds. What is ahead of us? What is coming up? What are we heading towards? There's coming a great return, a great moment where there'll be a separation. And what the reverse rapture is turning this around instead of saying, we are heading towards the future, but actually the future is heading towards us. And that right now is that moment of collision that all of us are having with the very future as we sit in this moment our static lives being collided with the possibility of Jesus' return in our life. I think what Paul is trying to say to us is that we're not heading towards a future moment where we all escape, but the future is coming towards us at a fast rate of knots to help us escape from that part of us that feels hopeless, persecuted. And when I say escape, not to to disappear into some far off wonderland, but to actually grapple with the idea of the kingdom of God here and now. And so what Paul is doing is he's suggesting that when the Lord appears or the timing of the Lord happens, something is going to be dramatically changed in your life. And I want to suggest to you that you have these enraptured moments more than you realise. You have them. It's not about waiting for a, a second coming. It might be you waiting for your 90th coming where you look at your life and you look at the moments where Jesus has appeared, where there has been a separation, where there has been a, a moment of being caught up into a bigger version of yourself, a greater way of being and seeing the world that is around you. So I just want to throw that at you because this morning I talked about this. We look at the future as being something way out there rather than see it as something that is moving towards us and colliding with the moment. The future is the very lived moment you are in now. And this very young teaching of the rapture that has taken Scripture and in a sense tried to create a, fearful, a, a fear of living in the moment um, so that we could... Um, uh, escape the possibility of the judgment of God. Um, I think Paul is actually saying the opposite and he's suggesting that actually the judgment of God is a whole lot different to the way in which you understand. And it's about God appearing now, God revealing God's self now. Okay, so um, here's, a, uh, here's some reverse uh, rapture scriptures, Frost, uh, questions Frosty gave me some and I've, I've, I've added a little bit more to it. How might we be one who is left behind. That's Michael's, one of Michael's questions. Why do you think we are so drawn to escapist evacuation theologies? What are the implications for how we live of this worldly versus otherworldly spiritualities? And the fourth question, what might be the purpose of the Christian community in light of this worldly gospel?
Um, Michael gave me these questions just to throw at you. And I've been grappling with them ever since. Okay. How might we be one who is left behind? What do you think, what do you think the question is saying to you? In light of how we talked about Jesus using Gehenna imagery to create a sense of separation. And I use the idea of false self, true self. This, this beautiful idea that one of the um, work, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is conviction, right? A cleansing process. And what does conviction do? It's, it creates a sense of separation. It creates a dividing line. It begins to pull you out of your old self and bring, draw you into the new self, all right? It's not just trying to make you feel bad so that you can ask God to forgive you so that you get saved in the afterlife. It's about you realising the point of conviction or the work of the Spirit in your life is a cleansing process, a maturing process, a, 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 a more mature consciousness, yeah. All right. You're so quiet. It's just amazing. Yes, Katerina. Did you, did you, hold on, did, did you ever get that? Just wait, come, come right, Callum. Okay. Good. Did you say it again, Daniel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. So Noah was, the wicked were taken, and Noah was left behind on the ark because he climbed on the ark with, with all of God's creation, all the animals. And so we should be aiming to get on that ark. To be left behind. Yes, Callum. Uh, those two scriptures that we looked at in um, Matthew and yep. uh, Luke, it talks about someone being taken and someone being left behind. Well, how do you know which one is the right one? The one, the more blessed one. <laughs> <laughs> because, because I remember listening years ago to a um, theologian who happened to be Jewish, and he said that the Jewish way of looking at that, the natural way of thinking of it, is that the blessed one is the one who is behind. Yep. Taken. Yeah, good. But we, we, they've always been for us linked with that scripture in Thessalonians. Yep. But, but that's the only reason we think that way, I think. Yes, exactly. And again, 
Again, you're talking about the last 190 years, all right? Um, and I'm not discounting anything that Mr. Darby had to say, a part of the Plymouth Brethren, probably a great man of God, but it is amazing how that became a part of American evangelicalism and mainstream and has shaped everything about how we have developed an escapist evacuation mindset, all right? Whereas what Daniel just said to there is very, very challenging, isn't it? We should be... We should be praying that we get left behind. And a part of that, the part of the cleansing is not about being taken away on a boat. Yeah, it's like, yeah. And I think that's the beauty about the story. It's not trying to literally convince you that every animal species was on a boat or that the whole planet was flooded. I don't think that's the point of the story. I think the point of the story is much richer and deeper. And I think Daniel was touching on some of that tonight. Yeah. Yes. Statement. Yep. Noah, like, we were just talking about that and the fact that Noah was called. Yeah, go. We were just talking about it and uh, Andrew was talking about that. And I was thinking, though, like, Noah was called righteous. You said that, right? Cool. Sounds biblical. Um, But, like, he wasn't perfect in any way. He still screwed up lots. So like the guy who got left behind that was called Righteous was pretty good. <laughs> so that's one thing. Yeah, just just interesting. Interesting. And the other thing was, yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. Shouldn't do that. Yeah. Um, and the other thing was, you said that in this context, that, that those verses you were quoting before, was it Thessalonians? Was it Luke? And the second one was Luke? Luke? I think it was Luke. Okay, and he was, who was he preaching to? In that, or who was he writing that letter to? Which one? Thessalonians? <laughs> I don't know. So Paul's writing to the Thessalonian church yeah. under incredible duress, mm-hmm. under pressure. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew is written uh, to the Jews, mm-hmm. to a Jewish group of people to try and help them understand this. why it starts with a really strong genealogy. Mm-hmm. Because Matthew and Luke take their premise from Mark and the Gospel of Mark, which is the first Gospel we wrote was written around 60 AD when the temple was being sacked. So mm-hmm. under huge persecution, and Nero was lighting Christians up and using those human lamps right. uh, to take light for his parties. So the Gospel of Mark was written in persecution. And uh-huh. out of that, so the whole thing has lots of storms in it, lots of pressure, mm-hmm. and doesn't have anything about Jesus' um, early days, nothing about his virgin birth. Nothing about him coming from Mary. Just starts with his baptism and finishes this. We will overcome, you know. Um, in my name, you'll cast out demons, which was added to the end of the story. It's a very short gospel. I think about 15 or 16 chapters. And then from that book, Matthew and Luke began to elaborate on the pressure and the persecution that mm-hmm. the Jews were under and began to unpack this. And so the um, eschatological ideas of Matthew and Luke evolved out of the base of persecution that right. have written this gospel in. So I think Frosty was talking last week that like there's that type of like hope yes. writing in the Bible. Yeah. And this kind of sounds hopeful, the way you're casting it. You know, there's a rapture coming for you to change you. Yeah. Why, why was he saying that it would happen? I might just be misreading, but why was he saying it would happen away from them in terms of time 
when like, you know, when you experience God, like in present day, like we talk about like experiencing God and it changing us for the better and changing the rest of our future. But for them, because they were the early church, was that not happening to them as well or? Let me just have a little stab at that because I'm not, not very good at it. So w- w- when, you understand, when you understand hopefulness in a culture that was really built on a coming Messiah, so the whole of the Jewish culture is built on a deep sense of anticipation. It's like, it's coming, it's coming. He, he's, he's nearly here. You know, they, every single day they come, come Lord, come, we want to hear you. Um, their mantra was, you know, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. So every day they're praying for the coming of the Messiah to to rescue them. So hopefulness was a whole lot more um, obvious and potent in the ancient Near East than we would do it now. We kind of hope willy-nilly. We're a little bit, oh, you know, it'd be good, but, you know, we're pretty comfortable, you know. It's only when we get really desperate, but they lived in a state of perpetual uh, desperation. Part of that was because the children of Israel were constantly um, overtaken by empires, constantly destroyed in in exile. In fact, um, Daniel, who's the most eschatological, probably Old Testament prophet, the reason his is so linked to, to Revelation is because the book of Daniel, he spent his whole life in exile. So he's got this eschatological view of the end, like an intense hopefulness that's going, oh my gosh, will this ever end? Will we ever get out of this? So they used horror writing, which was apocalyptic writing. That's why, it's got, that's why Revelation is full of um, beasts and wild animals. It's, it was their horror genre. And so when you use horror to overemphasize a point, to over, overemphasize violence and aggression and stuff like that. So Revelation is a horror story. It's a horror genre to make and overstate a point in the midst of being under duress. Um, yeah. And so Daniel writes his whole book while he's in, or writes his stuff, or we're not sure who wrote it, but it was written, but he spent most of his life in Babylon, if not all of his life, from a young boy right through to an adult. And so when you understand the context and the space, you go, oh, no wonder eschatological writing or apocalyptic writing was literally infused with hope and never about escapism, but always about transformation and restoration. So for instance, Old Testament, what was the one thing that God always promised the children of Israel? He said, you're going to the promised land. So the great promise of the, of the, uh, of the people of God was what? Land, the Fenua, not heaven, land. So they didn't see the, the coming of the Messiah to come and take them away. They came, saw him come to stay <laughs> so they could stay with him and a new kingdom and hopefully a little bit of murder and killing uh, in the process because, you know, we need to get rid of our enemies. Let's get rid of those stinking Romans because they're a bunch of heathens and uh, Philistines. So all the names that they used to adopt, to create a genre of enemies. So have you ever heard the statement, oh, uh, don't, don't give a good wine to a Philistine? So a Philistine was a derogatory term used to identify an enemy. So they would come up with words to denigrate people that their Messiah would come to rescue them from. 
Sorry, that was a, it was a really long answer, wasn't it? Is that right? Yeah. Rapture. You've, uh, you've, you've pointed out this idea of the 90th rapture, uh, which is not something I've ever thought about before. Uh, I suppose with the three things you had from N.T. Wright, I've, I've for a long time had the whole idea of, of the, the welcoming in of a king uh, as Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem. Uh, that, you know, people going out to bring him in rather than us being taken away which has always been, for me, very much an end times thing. So this is a, a future event that will happen, that uh, at some point Jesus will return and he will bring all things to an end and to a beginning. Uh, <clears throat> I suppose I, I, I like the, the, the philosophy of what you're saying of the 90th rapture, I don't like the watering down of this idea. Uh, so, so the 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 ninetieth time that we uh, either have that separation, uh, the ninetieth time that we welcome uh, the the justice of God into a, into circumstances, the ninetieth time we get revelatory word or. Uh, so I, I like that idea. Idea, the sort of the philosophy behind it, but I don't like the idea of it watering down this idea that that God will come back and put things to right, that there will be a moment where we usher in a God as the king of this earth. This is not about escapism, that, that we will usher him in to, to, to put all things to right. So... I'm, in, um, from an orthodox perspective, our tradition has always believed that there will be a moment, a final and complete moment, where there will be no more pain, no more sickness, and for some that has been heaven, but others believe that there will come a time when everything will be put right on the earth. I'm not completely sure, but I can understand why that is a beautiful idea. All right, um, and that's not something that I think you should remove from your, your anticipation or your expectation. What I'm suggesting tonight is that when the scriptures are talking and how they're talking to the people, which I think, by the way, I think that idea is, 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 quite, is, is also a, a new abbreviation on, on the, the Derby idea, but not a bad one um, at all. I think, though, for me, that I wonder if the challenge for us is how do we, what might be the purpose of Christian, Christian, Christian community in, to, in the light of this worldly gospel? What's the point? Are we just waiting till we go home? Because all through my lifetime, I've been saying Jesus is coming back. And in my head, I've been hearing he's back. You know, it's like, like Arnold Schwarzenegger on repeat, you know. Um, I'll be back, you know. And all I hear is, I am back. I've always been here. I've never left. Jacob in the ladder. But I hear what Brennan is saying is that there's something in us that wants to see the injustice clean up. We want to see the pain gone. We want to see the, um, 
the misappropriation of resource. We want to see the denigration of human beings finish. Um, if you let that be your primary point of reference, it can be a secondary point of reference from my perspective, but if you make it your primary, you start to step back from the challenge of what it means to do this Christian community now. That, that can be a part of your utopian um, end time, <laughs> you could say escapism, but no, I think, I think, look, I was saying to some before, how many of us have grown up reading stories about princes and princesses and that there's something in the human psyche that wants a prince to come and rescue us and it's always a white horse? You know, very similar to Revelation, right? Um, um, there's always a, a sense that we want to be carried away, caught up in, in a, the most beautiful love and passion. And I, th I think that's a normal part of the human psyche. And yes, we want pain to end. Um, uh, but I, you know, the challenge for us is will it end in our lifetime? So let's, really good thoughts. Anyone else got a comment they want to make? Yes, Daniel. You can have this another Noah word. This is going to be good, isn't it? The um, disciples were continually asking Jesus when he would return. And I mean, it's been on everyone's lips for years or for centuries. And uh, Jesus gave the parable of the fig tree and said, when you see the fig tree, um, now that wasn't a date and time, it was a state and time because the fig tree blossoms in spring. And so spring is the result of um, atmospheric conditions. And so spring, is a, it takes a, a while to arrive and suddenly it arrives and it's there. And we as Christians are always looking for the instant. Like we talk about miracles and we want an instant miracle on the click of the fingers. Well, when you cut your finger and it heals, that's a miracle but it takes time and it's not instant, but it doesn't make it any less a miracle. How come you don't come to formation all the time? We need, we need you here. Um, okay, so this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna break into our groups. You're gonna pick one of the questions and then someone from your group is going to wax lyrical about your thought. And we've talked a lot about this. Remember what we are talking about, rapture, a moment in time, uh, Something's going to happen in the clouds, a literal version. We're going to be caught up. We're going to be taken away, whichever tribulation version you want to use. Or there is some kind of deep mystical um, union that's happening all the time. And that what N.T. Wright says about what Paul is writing is that there is something rushing towards us that's inviting us to welcome it in, to embrace it and to engage with it. Um, and also we're not opposed to the idea of a moment in time, like Brendan is saying, where there'll be like this um, absolute universal cleanup. May not be in our lifetime, but there's a deep sense of hope inside of us. What, what the, the writers of fairy tales, and I'm not suggesting it's a fairy tale, um, say a happily ever after, ever after, all right? So break up into your groups, grab one of the questions, and then I'd love someone in your group just to give a little kori roar around which one you chose, why you chose it, and what conclusion you've come to. Kori roar together. <laughs> which chat, talk. I'd have Daniel in my group if I was you. <laughs> All right, let's just finish off because we have Kai tonight, and, and I'm not going to go too long because it's not fair to the cooks. So we have a few more minutes. We're just going to go for three or four minutes. 
who would like to start? What was a, a question you guys grapple with, uh, Craig? And what um, uh, and and did you, you again? We're not after any deep conclusions. Just share what you. Uh, we were just um, discussing about the evacuation uh, theology. Uh, none of us really, uh, I don't know if we're overly drawn into that idea, but I can see the appeal of it because it takes away our responsibility. Uh, it's like I've got a golden ticket, I'm off. See you later, and you suck, and I'm good. So um, I can see why that probably has an appeal. Um, but if you flip it on its head, then it actually puts the responsibility back on ourselves or the way the world is. Yes. Louise. We talked about the same question, um, and one of the things that I think about escapism and evacuation that we were talking about was that um, life here on Earth for some people, it's it's hard, it's traumatic, it's suffering. And so the whole concept of being able to escape this is really rather appealing, to be able to leave it behind, you know. So I think um, we just sort of had a general discussion around that thought. I think. Oh, yeah, and of course, our also taking away the responsibility from stuff that we do, you know, um, the things that we don't like about ourselves, our own insecurities and things like that, if we can just escape from that, um, I guess along the lines of the responsibility of that, but um, if we can escape, if we can evacuate and suddenly become perfect, why would we not want to be perfect? So in, in that escape thing, I want to get away from my addiction to something. I'm a bit mm. of about me. Um, mm. No matter what I do, I can't get away from it. I want to escape, so it, it seems appealing. Absolutely. Yeah. <coughs> how does the rapture help me? How does this rapture talk? How does it help me in my inescapable bondage? And I was also thinking about back to the, you know, when this whole idea started about this distant, amazing future. In the 1830s, there was a, a very difficult time, industrialization. There was a whole new world order. Um, there were famines, um, wars, um, and no answers because they had to really re reconfigure whole, um, the way they thought about society and identity and family and belonging. And so... Um, why not, like, sh let's hope for something better in the future. We don't know what it looks like, but we want it. Yeah, nice. Very good. Mm. Yeah. Anyone try another question? Lisa. This will be good. Oh, gosh. We um, just talked about quite a few things, really. But um, I did mention about... Um, people that live in countries where they're persecuted for their faith and whether we have, um, a, you know, our world sort of view um, of escapism and how we live our life now and whether people that live like that think differently about this and whether that's justified. Yeah, so we talked about that a bit. Um, and we did talk about something else. Might come to me. Yeah. Anybody else want to say something from their group? 
Uh, I, I used to work for Greenpeace where I'd go around trying to sign people up to be able to donate money to be able to help convince governments to look after the environment. And I came across this one guy and he, I'm like, hi, how are you doing? He said, no, 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 I don't believe in that. I'm like, oh, what are your beliefs? And he goes, well, I'm a born-again Christian. And he goes, I don't, I don't think we need to care about the environment at all. It's all just going to get burnt up and I'm going to heaven. <laughs> And so it was a really interesting exchange. Um, But, you know, if you hold that position, then that's a logical conclusion to come to. Whereas this position empowers us to say we must be good stewards of the world as Christians and we need to be concerned about the environmental impact we're having on the world. Which ironically makes the rapture more important than ever before. I like the last question was, what is the purpose of a Christian in the light of this worldly gospel? The gospel tells us that for God so loved the world that he sent his son to save it. So why shouldn't we be looking after it? We in our minds have somehow uh, separated the earth from the people within it. And so we look upon the world as the world, the people. But that's not what scripture says. Too deep, yes. Just on the back of what you're saying, um, it's been suggested that Christianity, in fact, has a lot of responsibility to take um, for the state of the world because we've um, uh, supported this idea that we're all going to be going anyway, so it doesn't matter. So just do what you like, you know. Whereas I think that um, I don't know that any of the other world religions don't have some kind of regard for the earth and for so other world religions are able to engage at a mystical level and, and um, Christianity sadly hasn't been able to go hasn't gone there in modern terms and so you know the the, the devastation of the earth has been more of a modern phenomenon and some would suggest that Christianity needs to take responsibility because of this teaching Now I remember what it was. <laughs> um, we just uh, talked about the maybe the the church in the 1830s or whatever, but we I feel like we've evolved a lot since even like people since then about our emotional health and our um, our body, soul, and spirit and things like that. And so maybe the escapism thing came in because people just didn't maybe have an idea about how to you know, have inner healing or, um, you know, to get over their problems or to, to, you know, sort things out, to communicate, to to get therapy or whatever. There was just sort of like you just said a prayer and then, you know, you, you couldn't deal with all your stuff so you just waited to get out of here. Yeah. Nice, very good, very good. Anybody else want to say something? Cool. I'll come to you. Got a few more minutes. Getting close to Um, we just on that escapist um, evacuation thing. I think the f- the strange thing about the rapture. We were talking about this. We 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 were talk hearing the language tonight. We still talk like it's going to happen in our lifetime, and yet it probably won't happen in our lifetime. And except the fact that at the end of our life we do get raptured in one sense because we all die and go somewhere. And so um, it's an interesting. 
phenomenon that we all die and disappear and get raptured in some way, shape or form. And this, um, the idea of the rapture actually um, complements what ha actually happens naturally. And so I guess that's why it's easy to believe this because in the natural, it actually, everything dies and transitions into, into another state. Um, so I guess the question I ask myself is that the inevitability of my death, how does that, um, what does that mean for me now um, in my day to day? Because I know I'm going to go at some point. Um, so I guess it makes it a bit more of a personal challenge. The other thing that's interesting too is that we do every, we, everything we can to prolong life and yet we talk about escaping because we hate life. Um, and so uh, why, why do we have that contradiction in our life? Um, we do every, yeah, we, we, we do everything to prolong it and to, have, to do the best we can here and yet we talk about trying to escape it. Um, it seems a bit strange. So yeah. Everybody chose the first one. So second, sorry, second one. How might we be the ones who are going to left behind? I don't think you have to answer that. I think you're going to be. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess just to flow on from that, because we talked about escapism as well, um, and I, I guess there's, there's two ways of thinking about it. It's it's the escapism. On a, on a personal level, on an everyday level, like what, what do we do every day to escape um, our current circumstances? Um, I don't think there's ever been like one person, I guess, in this room to not have a moment in their life where they're like, oh God, I, I wish I could just get out of this situation or I wish that never happened. Um, and then on the flip side, if you think of it on a, on a bigger on a bigger level, on, on even like a global scale, there's so much pain and suffering in the world. There's sickness, as, as we've mentioned before, um, and, you know, war and hatred and all of that. And so it's nice to, like, fantasise about this, 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 like, being able to evacuate and just escape from all of, all of this situation or everything that's going on in the world and just, I guess, hit a reset button almost and then just make everything go away. Yeah. Right, last one or two, one more. Okay, and then So we we didn't choose the second one. We chose the last one. The what might be the purpose of the Christian community in the light of the this one. So um, and we we started off thinking, well, is it to preach the gospel? And we ended up kind of saying, well, it's to live the gospel. And how do we do that? Um, we, talk, we talked briefly, I gave an example of um, the, that Amish community where um, the, the, the whole lot of their girls, I think, were killed in the States. And um, a number of years ago, the killer killed himself and, and left that community devastated, uh, not, probably not being able to continue because they'd lost a few of the girls and now there wouldn't be enough girls for the boys. And that very day, the parents of the ones who had lost their, their, their children, went to the family of the shooter and forgave them and showed um, real Christian forgiveness. And people in the States said this is a day where America is kind of really proud and this is who we should be. And it was a perfect example of, of a Christian community being light and salt in the world. And I think... You know, and, and, and it was 
kind of confronting, because we talked a lot about what Jesus did and how he confronted a lot of the wrong ways of thinking and doing in his time. And so here's a community doing that, confronting by forgiving. Um, but, but So we're to confront things that aren't right, to forgive, to live manakitanga, uh, um, to, you know, to, to live out the gospel in that way, be salt. Because if the salt's taken away, we've still got all the good things, but it's just, it's kind of useless. It doesn't taste any good. So instead of going away, we want to stay so that we can make, we, we can be who we're supposed to be and make this world a good place to live because we know that the kingdom is coming and has come. That future sense has already confronted us now and we can live in heaven right now. Um, I'm just going to ask um, Renee to come up and she's just going to prepare us for food. If I could just leave you this one last thought. When Jesus did something really profound, he said, um, one of the gospel writers wrote it, the kingdom of God is within you. Right? So there is a sense that there's something coming, but there's something that has already come. There is something yet to be, and yet there's something that was always the way that it was meant to be. It's always been heaven and earth and beautiful symmetry. And yet our perception of that is still evolving and we're still becoming more and more aware of how much more we want to see what is already there, yet our perception has been dulled. For me, that is how I've grappled with the rapture as an everyday experience of Jesus being a part of my life. All right, so Renee. I still have a question and I'm like, can I ask it now? You're going to hate me though. You're going to hate me because I know we're done. But the Thessalonian verse, um, you know how it explicitly says, like, you're going to be taken up into the clouds and the the dead will rise first and um, then we will go to be with Jesus. What do we do? So I'm, I've loved all of this conversation. How do we, what do I do? How do I reconcile that verse in my mind? Um, I think some of the scholars would suggest that it is, it is problematic if you don't grapple with your literal understanding of that. It would be naive, naive of me to say don't, don't grapple with that because there is something that seems very literal in that. Yeah. But also, too, it's about understanding how in the ancient Near East they understood what it meant to be separated from something. And that something, the clouds, the heavens, the space above the earth, that kind of language was how they understood, in a sense, being slightly carried away from this. Never too far because they never had like a long distance. They only needed a little glimpse, a little bit of movement away from um, what they were trapped in or held in or or caught in bondage for for hope to really work. But it was never never a sense that they would be, when Paul's writing this, he's not saying, oh, it's just up, up and away. There's there's no none of that sort of sense. And 
the vertical language, metaphorical language that's used is I think it's common for all of us, mm. common for all of us to think up, out, beyond, more, otherness. Um, and I, you know, I think he's just employing that kind of creative, symbolic, metaphorical language, and yet we all may be really wrong and it won't matter in the end. Mm. True. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> that was my itching question. Um, right, so that's that for tonight. Very good. Thank you all for contributing. Um, everything that was spoken into the microphone has been recorded and you are well, welcome to opt out of having that kept on the recording. So if you would like to be removed from the recording if you spoke, um, just let someone know at the end. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and just a couple of notices before we do dinner, which... Thank you, Tanya, for cooking tonight. What's dinner? Uh, oh, pumpkin and chickpea curry. Very good. Sounds awesome. Thank you for doing that. So there's Kai ready um, after the service, just a little koha to help cover the costs of that. Um, uh, next Sunday is our is Sunday the 19th, which is our long-awaited celebrate Greg Day. Um, so I think it's a chance for us to shower him with love and appreciation for all that he is for this community, has been and will continue to be. Um, and almost like an ushering in for you of your new season. So make sure you're there. It's be there or be square definitely for next week. Um, and it's a potluck. So bring a plate of something to share if you can, but definitely come regardless. Um, also cap money which is Christians Against Poverty, isn't it? Um, that is a course happening next Saturday, the 18th, 10 till 3 p.m. And it's a free, I think, debt management course. So it can help you learn to work with your finances and make them work better for you. So if you would like some guidance on how to deal with your finances, that is a very good place to go for that. You can RSVP to Edge, um, admin at Edge Kingsland. And... Uh, oh, and just a reminder that um, there are many ways to help and contribute at EDGE, and so um, this can be done financially. It is always helpful to, to continue to pay for the building and things like that, and it can also be done by means of coming early to help set up or helping with cooking, or there are many ways. So if you feel like you have still something to contribute, um, the doors are always wide open, so you can talk to Clint or Esther or anyone about that. Um, I believe that is all for us, ready for dinner. Esther, did you want to come and do the karakia for Kai tonight? Um, we're practicing our te reo. Consistently practicing, always practicing. Etu tato. Me ino tato. That means we should pray. Ete atua, whakapainga ene kai. Hei oranga mō o mātou tīnana, whangaia hoki o mātou wairoa ki te taro o te ora, ko ihu karaiti tō mātou kai ora āmini. <laughs>